Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What'd you do? I just Pinch got, yourself? No, I just got a sliver underneath my fingernail. Oh, no. I'll get your pocket knife. Oh, that's the pulling, worst. Pulling the uh, shade down. It's got one of them uh, oh, pull cranks on it. Pull strings. Yeah. And it's like 200-year-old wood here. <laughs> Probably nice and dry. Yeah. See if I can't get it out quick. Boy, that hurts. That's pretty bad, getting a splinter under a fingernail. Yeah. Oof-da. It's big enough I can see it. Oof-da. I got it, I think. Boy, that was a bad boy. Okay, sorry. All right. Hey, Mort. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Mort. Let me, let me get everything muted. Good to see you. How you been? I've been really good. Been really good. Uh, winter hasn't been too terrible. Had a couple cold snaps. Uh, it's dry down here. Yeah. Better up there? Um, we've had a little cold. It was warm during, I killed a snake in December. What? Wow, really? So yeah, it was warm in December and then we got cold over Christmas and then over the new year and then it's, you know, 50 degrees again today. So That's crazy. January, in South Dakota, oh, right? Yep, yeah, yep, in South Dakota. So, what part of South Dakota are you in for for our listeners? Oh, our listeners, um, uh, the ranch is in uh, southwest or south, yeah, southwest South Dakota. Um, we're very close to Rapid City. We're about thirty five miles south of Rapid City, towards Nebraska. Right. Um, we're right on the edge of the Black Hills. Um, you can see Mount Rushmore from the ranch but it's only about that big. (laughs) (laughs) So, so we are where it uh, converts from plains to badlands. So we have a diverse mix of, of of very different types of grazing. So. Okay. Pretty big operation too, right? Like, can you, can you go through like how big the ranch is? Uh, We're about 28,000 acres. Um, we're all contiguous, um, and uh, we use uh, holistic management. We do planned grazing, high intensity, low duration. Um, mm-hmm. Our stock densities are a lot lower than a lot of guys, you know. But uh, we've been doing that for about thirty years. I've been on the ranch for dang near twenty now. Um, so uh, yeah, that's what we do. It's a hundred percent bison. Right. We've got some we've got some therapy donkeys that that roam the ranch about eight of those but other than that it's all all bison the donkeys don't don't hang out with the bison not very much not very often sometimes they do depends on their mood 
Yeah. So. Donkeys are mercurial, right? <laughs> That's right. So. So, how many how many head of bison do you say you guys run up there? Um, currently, we're running about fifteen hundred head of of adults, and then we'll have pretty close to about eight hundred head of calves in the spring. Okay. So, just a little tiny herd, you know. Just feed them out of the backyard. <laughs> fifteen hundred head to somebody with cows to to the amount of cows that there are in the world. Fifteen hundred head is nothing. Uh, like, how does that compare to bison? Like, bison, yeah. How big is the bison herd in the United States? I guess uh, North America. So North American bison herd, they say, is right around a half a million. So, and the majority of that is in private ownership. So, right. According to the last NBA numbers, you know, the average bison producer in the United States, I think, had uh, 18 head. And then if you take Ted Turner out of that equation, <laughs> um, I think the number falls to like 12 or something like that. So, you know, we are an anomaly, you know, we're an anomaly across the industry, but as far as Western United States goes, you know, especially South Dakota, South Dakota has, you know, the most bison in the lower, you know, most bison producers per state. Okay. Um, and then you know we're 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 holding them we're holding the most bison in South Dakota. I think yeah. the most producers are in Texas. I was gonna say Texas so. and South Dakota. I seems to be always where my bison folks are at. So that's yeah. confirming right there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, number of producers is in Texas, but number of bison is in South Dakota. I, I like that. Statistic, you you said that like the average herd size is around 18, but if you take out Ted Turner, it goes really small. Uh, I think I saw a statistic within the last month or so that the average cattle owner has like 42 head. So oh, wow. just yeah. for comparison. Right. But you know, if you think about it, you know, there's a lot of cattle on the uh, on the east side of the Mississippi. And a lot of them are in small little herds and, you know, on small acreages. Oh yeah. And then I'm sure that's what drives that number down. Right. And similarly, probably in Texas, people wanting just to have, you know, a couple of bison around. That's. Yeah. I, I think they get into them. I think they get into them to train their horses on cutting horses and then, Oh, and then they grow up and then they fall in love with them and they keep them. So, you know, a bison's pretty handy. A bison can get around a horse pretty easy, can it? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the cutting horse folks like them cause they're got a little more energy and, and a little more stamina to them. So, yeah. But as far as getting around a horse, I think it's all depends on the rider. You know? <laughs> so. Uh, they can flat move in a straight line. They can, they are quick. Uh, they, they uh they they move more like a horse you know because there's a lot of the body weight is right up on the shoulders and you know like on a cow you know like a the flexion point on a cow is you know just behind the shoulder you know like their neck right almost yeah yeah you gotta you gotta get right up dang near on the shoulder before they flex but anyways a cow's 
a, a bison's eyes are offset to the side just a little bit more. And so their flexion point moves back on their body. So they're, they're gonna turn more and then they've got more body weight up on that front quarters. And so they turn more like a horse. Um, and, you know, and then in a herd, you know, they kind of behave more like, a, like, like sheep you know, because if one turns around, they all turn around. <laughs> they don't know where they're going. They're just going there at full speed. <laughs> they're just going. Yep, that's right. So I thought you were going to say they're uh, like sheep. They want to die. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, sometimes they just they just do. It just seems like no matter what you do, um, whenever something's worth money, they, they just want to die. Yeah. They're not worth anything. They'll, they'll live forever. So. especially when feeds high and they're not worth anything <laughs> yeah especially that especially that so so since the bison market is so small like i i wanted to ask about how do you market bison and how what what is the bite what does the bison market look like how do you make money on them well it's it's agriculture and it's niche agriculture and the internet and a couple of companies, one company in particular, uh, Judd Seaman at Quality, Quality Auctions, he's really, he's really been pushing online auctions hard and been doing a lot of it. Now, before online auctions and video auctions really caught on in the bison industry, you just had to market them yourself over the phone or take them to a local or not local, but a regional show or member um, association auction right or there was um a couple of larger like missouri's a big one saskatchewan's got one up there kramer's and uh north dakota's got one where you can just used to be able to open consign they're still open you can take them there live and sell them that way but we don't have a weekly market like you would with cattle you can't you can't liquidate them next week. It takes some planning. Yeah. And um, that's just selling on the open. But most people, when they market their bison, is from producer to consumer. So um, direct sales through farmer's markets, um, direct sales through feed har uh, field harvest, selling halves and quarters. So there's a whole lot of people selling, selling animals that way. And like us, we were uh, primarily a cow-calf operation for many, many years. And we weaned our calves, sent them on to either somebody who would run them as yearlings on grass or put them in a feedlot and punch them through to slaughter weight. And they would sell them on a rail. And then we also dabbled in all the mistakes you make in any agriculture. Well, prices aren't that good let's let's put them on feed and retain ownership and take them all the way and and just prolong the pain there <laughs> and uh or you know um like right now we're partnering with a strategic partner who has a website that's devoted to grass-fed um holistically managed um meat sources he's doing elk bison some beef now um some pork and so we have a partnership there. And so the majority of our animals goes through that website. So oh, we're, nice. we're keeping them, we're keeping them and um, we're uh, running them on grass and then pulling them off as, uh, 
as two-year-olds and killing them as two-year-olds and they're coming in at you know a thousand to twelve hundred pounds and, and we're going that way i mean that's pretty similar to grass-fed situations then right or finished yeah and what is the slaughter like though yeah the slaughter do you have to have a totally different type of facility to to put them through like a knockbox and stuff or is it same oh it's very similar okay well, uh, you know a lot of the bison facilities are are got an extra rail over the top oh that's all it is yeah so, yeah that's what i was thinking <laughs> extra tall and extra <laughs> secure um, but uh yeah uh most of the most of our processors do a blend of beef and cattle so they're doing beef and or beef and bison so um it's interchangeable how far do you have to go to your processor <sighs> a long ways um the largest let's see i'll do the top five guys so the top five guys um there's two in colorado one out in Brush, Colorado, one in uh, just outside of Fort Collins. And then um, there's a guy in, uh, um, where'd the UFO land in New Mexico? Roswell. Roswell, Roswell. And uh, there's one in Idaho and there's one in Wisconsin and one in New Rochford, North Dakota, out in the middle of it's not next to the interstate. It's north of the interstate a ways off in North Dakota. So, and then Rapid City, South Dakota, there's a pretty good plant here. So, um, so yeah, part of my Buffalo go 773 miles and the other ones go 250 miles and some of them go 35 miles. So it just depends on who's, who's killing and, and who has the slots and, and which animals we're doing. So now, uh, a complicated question. I'm thinking I'm thinking back to a number you threw at me um, oh, sometime over the last year when we were talking about how long would it take to kill all the bison if we killed them as fast as we kill cattle every week? So, yeah, the, United, the, the amount of bison that are killed all year long mm -hmm. would be killed before 10 o'clock on the first day of business if we killed them like we did cattle. So we only yearly harvest, not, not getting rid of all of them. Yeah. The yearly harvest. So, uh, I think last year, I think we were up to like 36 to 40,000 head of Buffalo under inspection killed. And so, yeah, you, you think about, they do three, four, five times that a day in the United States on the beef side. So, you know, pretty small market, just say 40,000 head killed under inspection. That's, that's not a lot. No, that's, that's when we do 600,000 cattle a week, every yeah. week, every <laughs> we 40,000 bison a year, a year. Yep. <laughs> so it, it's a pretty small number. And, you know, we're, we're, everybody that's in the business is like family because there's just the you know, small network. We haven't uh, said the name of the ranch yet. Have we done that for a reason? I don't think we even got in. I got a sliver in we my just finger. went into it, yeah. And then we just rolled right into it. That's our style. So, um, nope, I'm more, for you guys that don't know me, I'm Moritz SB. I'm the manager at 777 Ranch 
in in Hermosa, Fairburn, Rapid City, South Dakota. Um, 28,000 acres, we're all bison. Uh, it's owned by the Hillenbrands. I work for Mimi Hillenbrand. Um, one of the best bosses I've ever had because I just haven't left yet. So, Who I've um, heard described as a badass raptor driving hippie chick. Yep, badass raptor driving hippie chick. That's about right. <laughs> I love her Her email sign-off. It says chasing bison on the plains. On yeah. Her, her signature. I'm like, yes, that's yep. badass right there. Yep. So, yeah, she's, she's pretty cool. Um, she's at her other place in South America right now. So Patagonia, right? <laughs> yep. Down there where it's beautiful. It's just beautiful yep. country down there. So. Yeah, be in Patagonia for their summer and then South Dakota for their summer. I could dig that. Yeah. I could dig that. So um wasn't Dances with Wolves filmed on part of that ranch when it was like under previous ownership, of course. No, it was the same owners. Uh, Dwayne Lammers was the manager at that time. That was in the early 90s. Okay. It was under the same ownership. And, yep, the kill scenes were, were filmed there. So, you know, when Cody the Buffalo was running across at the kid holding the reins of the horse, he was holding the horses. And, you know, they, he jumps out and he shoots him and he falls and he slides to him. And then um, the, the, the bison where they're getting hit with the arrows and they all, they slip and they slide and the, the dirt comes up. That's, that's, that was done. That was done in the corrals and out in the pasture. Nice. So kind of, kind of interesting there. If you watch, you'll notice they all fall the same direction because what they did is they pasted the arrows, put the arrow on them, stuck it to them. And so they had an arrow sticking out their side and they, took a bunch of plywood in the alleyway and made a corner. They put a bunch of plywood down and made like a little dance floor and they greased it. Oh. Covered it with dirt and they would let one out and it would run down the, run down the alleyway and run around the corner with its arrow sticking out of it and, and whoop, down he went. And that's how they filmed that. And that's how they made them all fall down. Interesting. I, I hope none of them got hurt. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know. It was in the '90s. Who knows? I wasn't here. But, but no, there's. That's uh. If it was, if it was a a a union project, there was there was PETA people or, or somebody watching all the time. So, they don't let you get. We've done commercials and movies and you know like we were just, we just uh, did last year, uh, that Netflix special. Our planet was out. So. Oh wow. So we were part of that. And, and so on those bigger jobs, there's always somebody there making sure the animals are taken care of. But usually that's our decision. Yeah, they've been run too much or it's too hot or, you know, this is completely enough. So you guys are just annoying the shit out of us with all your stupid requests and we're going to quit for the day. Yeah. <laughs> My funniest story is uh, when, when, when those people come, you're called a wrangler. You're an animal wrangler. Oh yeah, and, and that's what and and this is what they do. Wranglers, come in. Wranglers, come in. We need to talk to you. And so that's that's how they wrangle the wranglers. And and of course, you can kind of imagine the crew that we have together. Um, I'm sure you've met a couple. Of, um, you've met Justin and Cody, haven't you? Yeah, I, I met the if they're the same guys that were there uh, when I visited about I think it was about a year ago. 
Yep. Yep. Same guy. So, so yeah, you do that to them, you know, they probably weren't <laughs> impressed. Yeah. <laughs> There's other effective ways to communicate that you need. Yeah. Me over there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. So, so yeah. And, uh, another, another funny story. Is this G rated? No. no. Okay. So we were, we were doing a deal and, and Justin was there and somebody told him to pick up something and, and move it. And, and of course, you know, he did it the first time to be nice because he's a country kid and is well-mannered. And the second time he kind of got irritated. And then the third time they got a little more gruff with him. And he says, you know, you can just move your own shit. And anyways, the guy comes over and he talks to me and he says, you know what that guy told me? And I said, well, what'd he tell you? And I said, well, maybe you should move your own shit. <laughs> so, that was too funny but you know you gotta stick together so anyways it's it's always a good time we're different we're, we're raising buffalo and we're trying to you know do things holistically and follow our grazing plan and save the environment and stop climate change so that's what we're doing yeah so, just with buffalo we're just doing it different we can't be normal we can't just run that's good though good so, takes all kind of folk uh, right. what what does regenerative grazing with bison look like like do you have the place broken up into paddocks or you're rotating them frequently or you're herding them around what what does that look like on the triple seven yep we're running 27 cracks or 32 i think 32 paddocks right now i lose track of how many i have sometimes yeah. too, but it's fine so, anyways yeah you know several paddocks and uh, we're rotating them through. We, 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 our, our threshold is 60 days of rest, but our target is, is closer to 120 days. And I think we've been averaging, I think this year during the drought, our average rest was like 112 days. So, yeah. so we're, hitting every, twice, we're hitting it twice in the growing season and twice in the non-growing season. About every three, four days. Yep. So how are you moving them? Well, sometimes you just, well, with, with planned grazing, you know, if you do it right, you just open the gate and they move themselves. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we use four wheelers, uh, Cody, uh, four wheelers and dogs, um, Cody or Justin or the whole team depends on which pasture it is and how it lays out and how it flows. Um, but most times it's just Cody by himself, just moving animals around and, and it takes, you know, one, two guys to pick up and move mineral. So that's about it. Change floats. It takes longer to change floats and and check fence than it does to move the animals. Right. That's great. Because they're wanting to move. I, I can agree with that. Um, so when I visited, one of the things we went and looked at was some of your water infrastructure. Um, have you made some changes since then? And, and I want to, I don't want to talk about like the challenges that you've had watering that many animals at a time with the, with the water that you have available. Uh, no, we haven't made any changes. We've, we've got a plan. We've got a, I've been working with this for several years with the NRCS uh, because I didn't want to pay an engineer to do it. And I wanted my tax dollars to do it. So we've, we've got a plan put together. Um, we just either need to start implementing that plan and um, going through that way. So, so we'll, we've got a good plan in place, but right now we're still just using what we can with what we got, where we're at. 
which you saw, which was moving tanks, portable tanks, semi-trailers, large storage chicken drinkers, and <laughs> and making it work. So, it, is that eating up a lot of man hours, or is that effective? It's it were it, it's just enough to get by. It's yeah. you know right now our water is our weakest link in the chain, so it's our limiting factor. You want to talk a little bit about how that like what kind of water system you're on, how much you can get, and how you got around it to water that many many animals. So way back when in the eighties, when times were tough, there was a. Uh, um, water association come through it was a large community project and so we've got rural water that comes from a deep well in the hills and serves i don't know a hundred and some odd people including us well when that was designed it was using the um knowledge of the day which was three gallons a minute <laughs> and set stop grazing and so that's the way the system was designed. So a lot of my taps, you know, I've got a three quarter inch Woodford, Iowa, whatever you guys call them, the orange ones, frost mm -hmm. free hydrants. And a lot of those just flow three gallons a minute. Some of them can flow up to 15. Um, just depends on where they're at on an auxiliary line. But the, the whole system was set up for each hydrant to have three gallons a minute. So with high density, low duration grazing, LARP or whatever you want to call it, holistic plan grazing, you've got a large amount of animals in one pasture for a short amount of time. Well, the system was designed for a larger pasture with fewer animals for longer time. So what I've done is I've got trailer pups that used to haul sand or cement they're pneumatic trailers um i don't know how uh, else like aluminum that. with a v bottom with a v bottom and then i've got some water tankers that i've bought and some milk old milk trailers and oil trailers and things like that and so i move those around and i pre-fill those and then the three-quarter inch hydrant fills those tanks and then off of that comes a two-inch suction hose hard suction hose goes to a two inch float and that's what that's what keeps the water level up because there's a great deal of psychology with animals drinking water it's if that tank gets a little too low their consumption goes through the roof oh really you i have data that. He, he's got data ck yeah. i never knew that that makes yeah. sense though it's like to think it's a scarcity issue then so you know yeah, on, on on like a 94 degree day for example yeah i've got i've got these water meters now that are cell phone based every five seconds it sends a signal up and then the company holds on to that data for a day and then compiles it and gives it to you over the computer and so if you can keep that tank full on at 94 degrees you know daily temperature you know you can keep you can keep them around 23 24 gallons an animal a unit a thousand pound unit but then if you let it fall below that they'll jump up to closer to 30 gallons and it's and it's and you know when you're when you're short of water anyways 
You just can't. And, and all it is is a psychology trick. As in say, a psychological factor, right? Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, They're sensing shortage and, yeah. gore- and filling themselves up to compensate. Physiological yep. response, right? Yep. Yeah. And so it's, it's, and, and if you're short of water anyways, or, you know, restricted, that's just going to make, it's just going to compound problems because now you've added another five to six gallons a unit, which is a lot. Yeah. A lot. When you got 1500 of them, that's a yeah. lot. You know what this reminds me of? The panic toilet paper buying during COVID. <laughs> that's, that's what's happening. <laughs> Oh man, don't bring those days back. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I am brand loyal. I'm brand loyal. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I, I, hit me. You want to give a him stick. a plug? Maybe you'll get sponsored. <laughs> hit me with a stick. But, anyways, I live out in the country, right? So, yeah. When you go to the grocery store, it's you got a carload. Well, yes. Amazon. Your house is like eight miles off the blacktop down the ranch roads. I know, but I hate going to town we all do yes but so i order like toilet paper and, and you know some canned goods through prime right yeah yeah well i ordered it in the big boxes and put it down in the basement well i ordered a big box and then when my reminder come up it was right in the middle of that panic and you couldn't get toilet paper and i was down on the end side of my inventory naturally and then when I did finally get some toilet paper, this old broad was looking at me cross-eyed. And I said, well, this is how much I usually buy at one time anyway. So just leave me alone. <laughs> I live right. 40 miles out in the country. Yeah. So. Eat a lot of chili. Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> you know, that toilet paper. And, chili. <laughs> and, you know, you put a roll down in the cubby hole to pick up and then it gets all chewed up and everything else. So, you know. You're, you're wasting quite a bit so you got to get that out ring of oil and grease off of there before you use it i put so. mine in a gallon ziploc bag and throw it in the center console i'm not that smart <laughs> just not that smart every every vehicle has a roll in a ziploc bag that's right somewhere usually it's in the center console of my pickup or under the seat in the gator there you go you got girls in your life. You got toilet paper everywhere. So, or blue towels. Yep, the blue ones. Those are good. So, so yeah. How's things down in Kansas? It's dry. Um, I think today is about sixty days since we've had much moisture. We've had two little snows, but they've been like dry powder, an inch, maybe two inches tops. I mean, you know, that's not. That's not even a tenth of an inch of rain. Yeah. Um, so it's it's dry. Um, it's been warm. That's been nice. It was 65 today. It's kind of a nice day to be out sorting cows and working cows. Yeah. Did so, you get into that high wind and fire next to yeah, Right. Uh, we were in the middle of it. Like uh, back in the middle of December. Uh, yeah. We had winds of over 75 miles an hour out at the ranch uh weren't any fires close to us this time but you know there were fires southwest west and and north there's a pretty pretty good size one up in northern kansas north central kansas that burned 
at first they were saying like 400,000 acres, but they've dropped that all the way back down to, I think like 125,000. Um, but it's, it's just like, it was 80, the wind was 80 miles an hour when that fire was going up there. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> run. That's about it. <laughs> Moritz, didn't you just have a fire happen on your guys' ranch? Did you? Yeah, we had, oh, geez, we had, well, we just had our fire department. I'm on, I'm on the board of directors for our district, so fire is pretty close to my heart. So I'm, that's why I'm that way. I'm not a fire bug or nothing. I'm, I'm just on the board of directors, you know. <laughs> is it for like controlled burns or for emergency? Tell you what, in oh. Western South Dakota, we do not have anything called a controlled burn. Oh, really? Okay. There's no such thing around okay. here. Okay. So that's you guys have no fire culture. <laughs> no, no, we it is a political no no on the on the plains. To, really, to, yeah, it's the uh, the government entities have have done ruined that for the private guys. So, like the forestry management in California, probably equivalent. <laughs> yeah. So, so, anyways, um, yeah, we had we had an early fire, we've had really weird season fires. Uh, actually, a couple years ago, we had a fire the day before Thanksgiving come through and burned up part of the ranch. It was started by a railroad, and uh, and then in the spring we had some some uh, recreators out on the on the Forest Service uh, public ground start a fire. One of those windy days, and it ran ran on to the ranch. It didn't do very much on us, but it did affect our neighbors pretty greatly. I think I think we burned up I don't know 160 acres or something like that. So we just adjusted our grazing plan there and just gave it a little more rest. And, and we had to cross three pastures to get back to it, back into the rotation. So, so what changes in forage have you seen on that, on that little spot that was burned by wildfire or have you noticed any changes in, in forage, like composition or density? You want the God awful truth? Yeah. I haven't been there since we fixed the fence. Okay. <laughs> You've got 28,000 acres to worry about. <laughs> Cody was over there and he said it looks good. So I'm going to yeah. take a word for it. So is it like biochar? It's like, I think that's a, the comment I always make. It's like, oh, burns are good. It's like biochar. So you just probably get really good secession. I, I think, I think it probably came back better than it was because it was, yeah. it, it was one of them corners that's uh, away from water and yeah. kind of get them hard to get them there and get them to utilize it so we we probably had too much litter yeah and maybe a little oxidation in that area and then you know fire did didn't hurt us at all going through there so and I'd then you'll know, be over there now well i'll, I'll now that you called Can me I, out on it i'll make a point. follow up with us <laughs> and, and drive over there <laughs> oh, I, I so, bet you next time they go through that pasture they'll get it down in that to. corner yeah. and they'll use yeah. it yeah so so yeah so yeah i have not been over there we we it was a part of the old older fence it was a probably a mid-generation fence it was wood and so we replaced the burnt h's and things like that and drove in steel so we won't have to worry about it again so that's that the time I was over there. That's how I feel about it. Like if I got a wood post that burns out, I'm gonna put a steel fence post back in because if that steel post 
or that steel H brace burns out, I got way more problems than my fence burning up. Yep. Yep. So it's kind of nice. There's spots. There's a couple spots on the ranch, like where lightning had started a spot fire, you know, and it burned, you know, a couple hundred yards squared and in a random circle, whatever. I can go back to those even years later and see right where they are. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because the cattle just use it just a little bit differently than everything around it. Hmm. But we also have a little bit, you know, we do a lot of burning down here. Um, I haven't had fire on the ranch since 2016, so five years for me. Getting close to needing it again because I've got, I'm getting... You know, in pasture corners and areas where cattle don't go very often, I'm getting a lot of old, rank, decadent grass that's starting to oxidize and and get that that real ugly gray black, under you know gray black colors in the in the understory. So, right, time to put some fire on that. For pigs. Oh, <laughs> oh. And pig, pigs in the hills are a sore subject, Mr. Espy. Oh, oh okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's a political non-starter. <laughs> political non-starter. Yeah, kind of like us doing intentional controlled burns on the ranch. Yeah, same thing. So I, I don't know when it was. It's probably around. It was around twenty years ago. I'm not for sure. I was in the Navy. Um, somehow some pigs got into the area and went feral and anybody that's from texas or oklahoma knows what happens when that happens they multiply rapidly um you can hunt them in texas you can hunt them in oklahoma that's great kansas said we're not going to let you hunt them unless they're on your land destroying stuff there's no hunting permits for hogs we're going to kill them so kdhe uh no or is it animal health what other whatever the kansas animal health agency is i forget what it is off the top of my head got with uh usda wildlife services came up with a bunch of money to start trapping and shooting these hogs and over about four years they flew the helicopter here um in barber county uh the first second and third years they got a whole bunch like hundreds in in a day or two and then the the last year i think they flew for three days and got 21 hogs and then after that they've been like it's just been monitoring and occasionally trapping a trapping one that they find out loose so hmm. we think we might might have got them almost exterminated in the area so yeah don't we don't want to talk about letting hogs run around uncontained <laughs> well the reason i said pigs is uh you remember when the covid first hit and they shut down the pig plant in sioux falls okay uh, they do five five thousand head a, a day or whatever they do there i don't know how many thousand head dogs they did but there was a glut of hogs in south dakota and you could get them for next to nothing i mean about the freight was all it was and so Justin was a farmer, reformed pig farmer from Indiana. He worked on a farm that had pigs. He was more of a, he, he, Justin's from Indiana, but he had, you know, experience with pigs. We won't hold that against him. No, no. 
And then, you know, I had four H pigs when I was eight. And uh, so we decided to, we, we went and got 12 pigs and we turned them loose in Justin's yard. And we had some electric fence for sheep. Some of them, uh, that netting. Yeah. Um, yeah. From uh, Callaway or Gallagher. 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 Yeah. Earth Gallagher. They can't get Gallagher's through it really easily. Right. Yeah. And uh, we set that up and, and we converted the old welding trailer into a water trailer. And we had 12 pigs going around Justin's yard in a, in a 40 by 40 square and he was moving them like every two or three days and, and uh then we had the pigs in there for the summer and then they turned into bacon miraculously and sausage and pork chops Yum. and then <laughs> we let it rest all winter let it rest most of the spring and then we turned the buffalo in there and you wouldn't believe you know what kind of action you got where they were just and, you know, some of it might have been the water. And then, you know, we were able to concentrate that, all that biomass yeah. right there. And it just, it's gorgeous, you know. So it's just, it's funny what you can do with, with, with gardening of animals and disturbing that soil, making it look like crap for a couple of days and then giving it enough recovery and rest and, and letting it come back outside the box we're not going to do it because boy it's labor intensive and then they're so cute when they're little and then they're just so mean when they're big and, <laughs> and we're not set up to load them onto the horse trailer or nothing and and they've got way more we let them go way too long i think mine was 400 and some pounds by the time we got butchered <laughs> oh geez you know was the bacon okay. good though oh it was good but you know what it's like holding a piece of plywood, trying to get them onto a trailer. I do. <laughs> they make the ugliest sounds. They're just in the middle of a, in the middle of a you know thousand acre pasture. You know, like a oh geez. So yeah, no way, no way. I don't know if I'd do it again, but it would have to be hundreds and hundreds, and then you'd have to hire some guys make a true enterprise out of it but it was a fun little experiment and you know those pigs only had one bad day in their life and that was it so scale is the something that people don't always can't always wrap their heads around oh we'll just get some pigs or just get some chickens like seven thousand acres here do you understand how big that is and how many pigs i would have to have to actually make a difference to do anything <laughs> yeah I know. I'll oh, just get some goats. Like, okay, I'll just go get 500 goats. Yeah, that'll work. 500 goats and a herder. Yeah. And, and a camper and, 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 and a couple of dogs. It sounds like suspiciously like a black hat coming out there. Yep. It does. But, you know, goats, goats are where it's at. You know, I think and the sheep and goat guys are making more money than we are. I think yeah. they are. Yeah on a per unit basis it's just insane and then if if you can get the direct marketing down and get in the right market area you've got it made you know so it's you can direct sell sheep and goats to some ethnic groups and they will drive out to your pasture and butcher it themselves or take it home live like mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, so. we're going to be getting into that probably hopefully this year and coming episodes talking to some sheep and goat guys and learning their secrets. Nice. If they'll tell us. They'll tell us. I want to get, there's this one guy who talked about, oh, he probably won't come on actually now that I'm thinking about it. He used to go to the black market in Chicago under underground subway and sell a load of sheep for cash. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He would just sell them live to the ethnic market in freaking Chicago. Crazy. And they probably only had one bad day in their whole life. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear, now I want to hear some of the story of Moritz. Where did Moritz come from and how did he get to be the manager of the triple seven? Oh, a hundred percent completely by accident. Best, um, best ways those things happen though. Yeah. Failed upwards. <laughs> I was going to backtrack. I was going to try to find it, my screen for my zoom, but I think that's on a different one. I have a, a big sign that has a goat with a no goats on it. And that's what I use for my EL board zoom calls. <laughs> no goats <laughs> so uh but uh i was uh my family's ag background um whole extended family has touched agriculture somehow um my folks are from southeastern montana my grand folks one side's been there for over 100 years and the other side's been there for almost 100 and everybody's either in agriculture or, or at least not too far removed yeah um and uh my mom and dad's place was big enough to raise a family but not really have two families working on it um they currently lease it out and provide them a pretty good life um i went to school in rapid city south dakota on a on a scholarship and uh i started doing some day labor work at triple seven ranch in college for some extra money and then i graduated school i went to work for the fsa for a little bit and then i went to u.s bank systems as an ag lender and i got my three and a half years experience in there and i was always sitting in there looking out the window and and I liked what I do. I liked the customers that I had. And, you know, this was, this was during mad cow times. So things weren't all that great. Um, but I enjoyed what I did and I enjoyed helping people. And, and actually, you know, now 20 years later, I was at a funeral back home and, and met my very first, I, I was, didn't, didn't meet him. I saw him and had a good visit with him my very first customer as a, as an ag lender. And, uh, when you're an ag lender, all the other people above you clean their files out of their junk and they're losers <laughs> and they give them to you. And that was the first file that I opened and I met him and I went to bat for him in the, in the back room of the conference room with the loan committee. And, and he wanted to make some drastic changes. And, you know, this was in, 2000 and early 2000s and, and it was going against tradition and and I saw the numbers and thought it could work and I went to bat for him and you know 20 years later he's he's added property he's raised a family he's bringing kids back to the ranch and 
And that's that's the story that I want to take away from ag lending. I don't want to take away any of those other stories that that's the story that I want to focus on. And, mm-hmm. and then um, <clears throat> Mimi was uh, taking over ownership and management of the ranch and she needed somebody to come work for her. And, and I was actually down there doing some day labor and working on a commercial on my vacation days at the bank. And I said, you know, Mimi, if you ever got a job opening here, and ah, give me a call. I, I, I might come down and help you out. So, and uh, so she, she called that bluff and I was like, you know, I'm going to do it. And there ain't nothing worse than telling your dad who's been a rancher all his life. And you say, dad, I'm going to quit the bank. I'm not going to wear a tie anymore. And uh, I'm going to get rid of my stable job and my 401k. And uh, I'm going to go work for a ranch, be hired man. <laughs> did he disown you or threaten to you know he was he was you could you could kind of see that uh you know he was i think he was more shocked than anything but you know he was he was supportive he says well you gotta go do it you know i was in my mid-20s i mean what did i have to lose i mean if it right. didn't work out I'd, you know i'm sure he probably would have opened up the couch and and laid on the heavy glares and a few told you so's and then I probably could have got back on my feet and did something else. But, you know, I had my resume built. I could, I could always just go work for Wells Fargo or somebody else at that time, you know? So, you know, I mean, there was a way out. It was just, but uh, I don't think anybody thought it was going to stick. And by God, it stuck. Cause once you drink the, the Kool-Aid out of the, you know, you, you, you finally finish Alan Savory's book and then, you know, you get through that and then you then you're chasing buffalo i mean you're in you're in there's no turnaround so i think what also helps you made the comment already is you have an amazing boss and i think that is is something that's very crucial is it sounds like she's been pretty crucial to you staying on right yeah we've, we've we've developed a relationship over over the years because you know people that know me personally you know i was I like to have a good time and drive fast. I don't know what else to put it, but you know, fast horses and, and walk slowly. And uh, yeah, that's what I like to do. And, and, you know, she let me grow, let me make some mistakes. Um, let me fail forward. And mm. uh, when I did fail backwards, you know, gave me a good swift kick to get me back forward again. So um, we've made mistakes on the ranch, but, uh, you know, we were, we were, uh, we were feeding a hundred percent. Well, not a hundred percent. We were feeding close to probably 75, 80% of our calf crop in the corrals on a, on a feed ration and taking them clear to slaughter. And so we were carrying overheads there and then we were feeding hay and cake to the herd. And we were running pretty close to 2,800 head, maybe close to 3,000 head. And yeah, the, those were big numbers and, and they were fun to, fun to put up, um, but it was a lot of work. It was, it was feeding animals in the corrals every day, you know, truckload leaving about every week, um, you know, just- was that too many? That. Was that too many bison for the ranch? Not, not, with, not with supplemental feed. 
that's that's where that's why we're feeding so much hay and cake okay so you know we were we were we we had them on feed you know for five and a half months so you know the 20th october you just started filling the feed wagon with ground hay and cake going out and feeding every day and uh you're not doing that anymore are you no no so um so yeah now we're now we're down to you know about 1500 you know when it was wet a couple years ago i think we were up to 18 1900 animal units you know like 2400 head but like 1800 units um but uh you know now we we feed less um we we finish on grass we're aga certified and uh gap certified so that's that's the way we're going so we decreased our overheads you know crazy amounts crazy amounts and then shortened our cash flow down to less than a year by going from holding them and feeding them to slaughter to selling calves and then we did that for several years and now we're ratcheting back up into um holding yearlings and then running them as two-year-olds and so you know we went from a 24 to 36 month cash flow down to a year cash flow and now we're ratcheting it back up to 18 24 month cash flow but slowly and doing it on grass without adding overheads so that's where we're that's what we're trying to do there okay and, you know you, there's a lot of volatility on the calf side but there's some stability on the on the on the grass fed side on the, on the finish side grass finished and and we're trying to grow that grass finished because you know bison have this halo and to my fellow bison producers i'm not trying to kick any dirt or draw any lines in the sand we're we're in this together we're all about protein and we're all about species but um the the consumer's eyes there's a there's a halo on these on these animals head and the basic assumption is that it is bison and it is grass-fed and that is not the case and, and we're trying to we're trying to make ourselves a smaller niche inside of a niche and say that we are a gap certified product and, a, and an aga certified product third-party verified grass-fed animal from your door from our pasture to your door so that's where we're going regeneratively grazed i like we're, it yeah so and we're making steps and i think next year i think next year on sean's packages there'll be a qr code and you'll be able to scan that qr code you'll be able to to uh see which animal that was and, and if you want to dig a little deeper We've got the software set up and, and the traceability program set up and running now that you'll be able to scan that QR code and then you can see every time we move that animal from one pasture to another, when it left the ranch, when it arrived, and when it was killed and when it was boxed and everything else. So hey, I, I gotta know more about that because it's it's kind of hard to talk about traceability like that with a lot of cow guys because a lot of cow guys are frankly afraid of it. Uh, I'm not. So I want to hear some more about that system. Like what's it called? And, and. Um, well, right now in the, the management system, well, the, what's it called? It's called the EID tags. Okay. That's <laughs> so the, how are, but how are you tracking it with your software? 
so we're using AgriWeb right now. And then um, uh, Sean's working with a developer to, to take that information from AgriWeb and then correlate it over to the QR code. Okay. So that's where we're at now. It's, we're not even into beta yet. So, <laughs> so that's, that's where we're at, but hopefully by next year, it'll, it'll work. So about where I'm at, got a good solid yeah. concept and you think, you know, how it should work. Yeah. But, uh, but no, that, you know, 95% of it's there through AgriWeb. Okay. Um, we're using a, it's they're they're out of, they're out of Australia. Um, and then they, they're in the United States now. They're a group of young guys. They're really good. Uh, we did use Maya as a grazing app. And, you know, we use Pasture Map. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm still using Pasture Map. Um, I like Maya. Maya was good for analytics, but, you yeah. know, as a whole farm program, it really didn't fit. So we gave AgriWeb a try, and that's where we're at now. And, and you know, they record every time we put out mineral, every time we – you know, move animals, anything that's done, tagging, you can do scoring, um, you know, uh, like if one's got a bad foot, you can, you can flag it and, and everything else and record all that. So, and then primarily that was for our gap certification for our third party certifications. So, you know, cause they're going to be tougher and tougher every year and AGA is going to be tougher and tougher. And, you know, we're Autobond also, but Autobond's pretty easy. Um, so that was pretty much for the third party verification to verify that, you know, they are on pasture. They're not in the corrals for 40 more than 45 right? days. Yeah. Um, so, so I can, so it's, it's real live time, live information that's, that's printable in a easily digestible form for your auditors. You know, and like you said, it's a tough conversation for the cattle guys because the cattle guys like right now we can demand a little bit of premium for that. Yeah. And this whole deal of RFIDs, you know, I got to pay the cost. You've got to pay the cost, but you're not getting any premium. So now, now our overheads and our, our, well, our direct cost per head has gone up, you know, you know, because we've got to buy the readers, we've got to pay for the software, we've got to buy the, you know, the, the iPads, and, you know, like, uh, my neighbor that came over to help me, he was kind of, he was kind of chuckling, we were doing a sort on a miscellaneous pen, and we're, we had about six different animals in this pen, and we were rescanning them, and I had the iPad in my left hand, and a stylist in my mouth, or my iPad, and I was running the hydraulic chute with the other, and <laughs> had my had my scanner the boss had the scanner and she was scanning them in the in the ready chute behind the squeeze chute i was running the hydraulic sword out the front and he thought that was pretty funny that you know you got that ipad and he says if the phone would have rang it, it would have been a really good picture to take <laughs> if i would have been talking on the phone at the same time so but you know that's where it's coming from because everybody you know it's 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 that one half of 1% that ruins it for everybody else. Mm -hmm. This guy that says, yep, you know, we're all this or, you know, what do you call it? Greenwashing or, or yeah. whatever, yeah. you know, whatever those companies are doing that are making it tough, you know, cause it used to be, oh yeah, you know, come out and 
you know, we're trying to be as transparent as we can be, you know, we host several groups and tours and things like that have visitors. We got nothing to hide, but the average consumer can't, you know, just load up and come to South Dakota and verify. So we've got to develop that trust, trust some other way because it's just not a affidavit. It's just not a signature. Oh yeah. I've owned these animals their whole life and they've been on grass and they've never had any, any animal byproducts and things like that. And, and you know, well, like lanolin is lanolin an animal byproduct. Um, I'd probably say, yeah, because it comes from wool. Right. You know, in my mind, it's not, but if somebody found out that it come from wool, did that did that sheep have to die to get that lanolin, or was it dead after? You know, so I mean, it's a gray area. So like, you know, I don't know. Check with your vitamin D. Like you're in your mineral pro regime. Most of your vitamin D is 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 sourced out of uh, out of from lanolin. Really? Well, that like similar to tallow then. Well, similar, but you know, lanolin comes from the oils in the wool. Yeah, the, comes from is... the, the fat after they've been butchered. So, <clears throat> but so, but if you if you just imagine yourself as somebody in the in downtown whatever urban metropolis, and you're like, well, what is lanolin? Well, lanolin is oil off of a sheep, you know, from their wool. Well, so like even our vitamin D, we we pay extra to get the medical grade human stuff for vitamin d instead of just getting it from lanolin so that's that's how deep we're going so you know that's that's where we're trying to be and you know and then non-gmo you know god everywhere i go there's a fucking gmo standing around the corner gonna get me and you know but you know we don't feed we don't feed our animals any gmos you know and you know it's just it's just like like My cows get sea salt, yeah, and alfalfa, yeah, like and only only just a little bit of alfalfa to get them through the winter because my forage is just it's protein deficient. Uh, right, I I use C ninety sea salt, and they quit eating everything else. They quit eating the mineral blocks that we had out. Yeah, no, it's do bison. How do you supplement a bison? Like, do they need a, a lot different of a mineral package than a cow or is it pretty similar there's no significant data research that knows what the true nutritional intake for bison is good answer so you just got to go off your historical calving rates and how good they look they look like crap they got a dull look to them. They're probably something missing. And um, so we based, we built, we built our mineral program off of cattle data, mm-hmm. and tweaked it from there. The hard part about mineral supplementation for bison is getting them to eat it. And there's camps of people that have just the bare trace mineral buffets out there. Redmond, tell you what, there's. Redmond is is the big player, uh, Payback and uh, Purina. Multivin, okay, yeah. Um, 
Do they have injectables for bison or no? There is no labeled use for any pharmaceuticals for bison because <laughs> every anytime you use anything for bison, it's off label. So. Oh wow, I had I didn't know that either. But I am a big proponent of multi men. I I I really enjoy multi men and and I think it really makes a difference, especially on them baby calves. So. But. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a missed opportunity, Moritz, for them not to label it for bison use. <laughs> well, the amount of sales that's going to go into the bison, and then you know, it has to be studied. They don't think it's significant enough. Is that what it is? That's yeah. crazy. Half a million head of bison, like that wouldn't. That's so, I don't know. That's so pretty effed up. Like, yeah, just put it on there so we can do it. But you know, you know, I mean, you go to the USDA and they got they got you know, nutritional requirements for emus, ostriches, and everything else, but there just hasn't been enough done on bison, so, so yeah, but we'll get there, Uh, that's what part of the center of excellence at the SDSU Brookings is all about, is to get that kind of going, and so we have a, we have a chair, I think that's what it's called, a chair, university chair, or something, and and so we've got uh, uh, two people working on on programs and grants and 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 correlating data from studies from way back when, and then they're even you know they're even collecting you know rancher data and things like that. So now all that data is going to be collected in one spot, cataloged, and hopefully put to use for the producers. So that just got going here about two years ago. So we're moving up in the world. Yeah, that, that'll be interesting. It's surprising to me that there's no university data on on veterinary practices for bison, or there's not much for veterinary practices on bison, and there's like almost none on like medication and supplementation. There there is a handful. You know, Turner's Turner's have been doing some research on their stuff, and then back back in the 90s and early 2000s uh wendell eden um ndsu can't remember the doctor's name right now um but it was the bison research was at ndsu in north dakota so and then that quit so there's there's a little bit of data you know as far as digestibility and and then um uh Oh, cripes, I just went blank. Skinny guy, gray hair, salt and pepper, University of Saskatchewan. Um, the Canadians, Canadians are ahead of us, though. They've got a lot of data. And uh, they did, a, they, they've, they've used some government fundies just funding just to have ranchers just collect um, necropsy samples, and just send them in. You know, they paid them to do that. So, you know, you know, so Canada's got some some research. So, you know, there's there's there there is research out there, but like as far as pharmaceuticals go, there's you know, there's no real data. So So what do you do when you have one that that gets sick or is is obviously ill and in distress? <sighs> uh, no, don't panic. Um well if they do get sick, you got something wrong. That's one good thing. Like, 
yeah, if it's not trauma related, you're going to have some problems because they're pretty healthy for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, but so you're saying like, it's not going to be just one. Yeah, it's not going to be, it's Lay's potato chip time. You might as well just, <laughs> you just might as well clear your calendar because you got problems. Um, mycoplasma has reared its head this year pretty dang hard. Mm -hmm. It hit us yeah. pretty hard. Um, cattle, it's not a big deal. You hit them with a little bit of Draxin and they come right out of it, cleans it right up. They get a runny nose, a little bit of cough. And they might lose 20, 30 pounds, but it kills bison deader than a doornail. So if you get, if you get uh, mycoplasma in your bison herd, you're expecting probably five to 30% death loss. So what does that do? It doesn't restrict, is it restricts oxygen to the, to like organs or? um what it's a it's kind of like a pneumonia it turns okay. the respiratory it makes then the lungs look like their liver yeah slowly closes up and then like they've been getting there's uh, several strains that are swelling the lymph nodes and restricting airflow and food consumption and then you get arthritic um arthritis symptoms and then you get a mastitis symptoms and then usually a bad bag so so yeah, it's, it's got instant effects and then lingering effects. And so, you know, the, the industry, Turner's and several other uh, producers, including ourselves, we all got together and, and cultured some mycoplasma years ago and, and did a uh, private label vaccine through Newport Labs. And then another group of two producers actually did their own and a, a separate, same but separate kind of vaccine. And that seemed to be working for a while. And, you know, now we're into Omicron of the mycoplasma and the bison business. It's mutated again. And, and that strain that we've been culturing that several producers have been culturing um, wasn't included in the vaccine, but it will be, you know, in the next one, but that doesn't help you for 12 to 18 months. So, you know, but it, it takes the integrity and the wherewithal and, and the community mindedness of each producer to go out and actually take the samples and then get those extra samples to the lab to be cultured and mapped. So that's, you know, another, hell, another 180 bucks or something like that per animal. So you, you as a producer, you know, you can't rely on Zoiitis or Fort Dodge to be already handling this for you. You've got to be the one being proactive and, and doing it. So, but, you know, that thank God that, you know, we're all family. And, and if I'm getting it, somebody's going to get it later. And so if I can get my sample in, you know, a month sooner, you know, that means the, the, the vaccine will be done a month sooner for somebody else. So... It's good that you guys stick together like that. And then, you know, so we had mycoplasma and we didn't sell an animal off the place live this year. Because so, of the mycoplasm? Just, you know, yeah. well, make sure it didn't leave. Well, yeah. Well, the, the samples we were culturing were not included in the original vaccine. And so that means that nobody else, there's only two vaccines being made and there's one company making both vaccines. And we're, we're talking to them on the phone and they say, well, it's not included in the, in the, in the, uh, you know, the vaccine. So, you know, we just, we decided we changed our management and, 
and the only thing that we sold were were animals destined for slaughter so you know not everyone can do that and did i do it you know on you know i did it but do i enjoy it no i i carried over a few animals and 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 i my gross product went down and and my cash income went down so you know so hopefully next year by the time we get a handle on everything and i'm not showing any symptoms and have any you know big big positives well then i'll be able to in good conscience be able to move some animals down the road so so i hope that works out for you yeah but you know i don't want to be the one lets the cat out of the bag you know so that's that's where we're at so but i don't think everybody would do that but i'm pretty sure about 98 percent of the bison or 99 percent of the bison producers that i hang out with would would do that so you just change the management but you know that comes from back to holistic management you know because we're used to changing you know it gets right. dry you know we got to destock you know it gets wet oh we gotta we gotta move a little faster you know right. and you know you're just you're just used to changing your plans and you're just not stuck in your ways so and it come, makes it a little easier but on the pocketbook you just ah it's ag roll it over <laughs> roll I'll it over. To do better next year yeah, we'll do better next year <laughs> oh i know i remember when i was growing up when you and i were both much younger men that there was a lot of controversy about bison and that most of the bison had cattle dna in them what can you say about bison and the purity of their dna <laughs> did i open up a can of worms for you well my my personal stance mort's sp representing um triple seven ranch um we do dna test all of our animals we were in the very first of the bunch to do our dna testing with texas a&m mm -hmm. and we were we were donating and sending we were participating and donating um to get the uh genome mapped okay and so we do not allow anything to continue breeding that has cattle in aggression but we are not selecting for that we're not i don't know how to say it i'll just say it in easy terms the base cow herd there was cows with cattle in aggression okay we did not we did not focus on those animals and take them out of the herd and kill them we are letting them finish their productive life if they become okay. open they're going to be cold anyways but then our replacement heifers, we've been doing DNA testing to current technology. And if that year's heifers meet current technology to go back into the herd as testing free of cattle alleles, they go back into the herd. What percentage of bison will test free from cattle alleles? In, in our herd? In your herd and in the and in the bison and in the North American bison herd. A lot. <laughs> um uh i think we did uh 
what did we do? I think we did 230, 230 heifers and we had two tests, two of them tests with cattle alleles. So, um, less than a percent for you guys. Yeah. So, um, what's it like in the rest of the industry though? I don't think it's that high. Um, and then, you know, there for a while, they, they couldn't tell the difference between prehistoric cattle and modern cattle. So they didn't know if it was cattle before the ice age or cattle when the Europeans showed up. But the, the technology is getting better. The, okay. the samples, because you got to remember, you're dealing with bison, your data set is about this big. Mm -hmm. So until the data set, you know, like if you think about Angus, the data set huge. is huge. Yeah. And then if you deal with bison, the data set is like that. So it's, it's controversial. And, and if somebody here, here's, the, here's, here's the problem. If somebody's using cattle DNA or a cattle aggression as an argument, okay, that's outside of their management plan, they're using it as a tool to fool you because they've got something up their sleeve. Now, if your management plan is to maintain the integrity of bison, bison as a species without cattle aggression, and we're gonna cull animals that happen to test, you know, but if you're gonna go out and just forcibly cull animals that test and not, you know, they did that, you know, we, we went to World War II for people, you know, doing stuff for genetics and calling them hard. So don't even go down that road with animals. So if it's part of your management plan and you're going to work it out, yeah, that's fine. But then take a step back. And what I want you to remember is, is let's, let's, let's teleport back to 1890, right? And supposedly there's, you know, a thousand head of bison in the whole world or right. less. And me and you are standing next to Charles Goodnight or um, Scotty Phillip and, or Lone Coyote up in Montana or, you know, whoever, right? We're, we're standing right next to some of those conservationists of the bison. The, the and, last of the original native plains bison. Right. What are the tools at our disposal? Eyeballs. Eyeballs and things that we know. And those guys tried to crossbreed some cattle into bison and were successful in, in a little bit of them and made some beefalo. And some of them beefalo were able to breed and had more, right? So yeah, sterile, yeah. So anyways, you know, it's you're, you're cussing these guys for trying to do the best they could with what they had. And I think then, the argument is if they had not have cross had tried to crossbreed them with cattle, that they would have that bison bison would have been extinct. Maybe. I don't know. I ain't gonna argue it. It's possible. It's totally possible. But here's my side. We've got cattle aggression going clear to 1890 or 1900, right? And so now we have a line of generation post bottleneck that has made it to 2020. So what did that animal contribute to the genetic gene pool to get here? Right. And probably 
could be 20 to 30 generations ago. Right. Like I am as much Chinese as, as my, the Buffalo standing on triple seven ranch, those few head that have cattle aggression are cattle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, and, you know, we do not promote crossbreeding of bison with cattle. We don't do that. We, we try to preserve the, and the integrity of the species bison and bison at the ranch but but all i'm saying is 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 that cow that lineage of animal made it whether it was a longhorn in texas that escaped from the the conquistadors or if it was a, a local farmer that caught a calf and crossbred it with his milk cow whatever it was it wasn't in recent history like the 90s or the 80s or even the 60s which these people are taking it. And they're like, oh, private, private industry crossbreeds cattle with bison and then sells them as bison. That's a political, that's a political ploy. They're using the animal as a tool and some buzzwords to, to fool you. And so when they actually have cattle integration, they're, 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 it's out there. And there's data that's published <laughs> coming from some of these parks and some of these people, you know, their cattle are just as dirty as everybody else's. <laughs> you know, they're, I should say cattle. They're, they're, they're bison have cattle and aggression popping up all the time. And then, you know, in 2009, you could have had a cow with the, the mitochondrial DNA test clean. And then in 2012, if you did another, the, the, instead of the nuclei or the, what the heck? There's two different types, but anyways, the technology's still getting better. We're finding yeah. we're finding better and better samples of bison frozen in the tundras of Siberia and Alaska, and then in the caves of Texas and everywhere else, where we we're, we're able to extract DNA to 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 get a bigger picture pre-European times. So the the science isn't even settled yet, and the data set is so small. So. If they're if they're using if they're using cattle and aggression to 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 sway you one way or the other, my advice to you is take a step back and try to really listen between the lines of what they're trying to sell you. Okay, I mean that that makes sense. And to go along with what you're saying about the national park herds, you might remember this about ten years ago, and I heard this from my friends down south of me that are also in the bison business, whose name I won't mention. Um, they told me that the government refused to test the Yellowstone herd because they said it was pure and they didn't need to test it. But it was kind of like a secret that everybody in the bison industry knew that they were interbred with cattle and had cattle DNA. Is Do I have any of that right? I cannot comment or confirm any of that situation there. Um that that was the story, but I don't I don't have firsthand knowledge of that. But that story is floating around there. Um, okay. But you know, but you know, Yellowstone animals are around, and you know, like heck, last weekend, you know, Ted Turner made that deal where he would quarantine them, and then he gets to keep the offspring. You know, and cripes, there was ten bulls that sold for fifteen thousand dollars. You know, a piece. So were they you know, worth that? Oh, yeah, they're Yellowstone genetics. 
because they're, it's like an outcross. Is that what it is? No. What makes a Yellowstone genetic special? Well, it's been limited. Everything coming out of Yellowstone, you know, is killed. You know, everything that comes out of Yellowstone is killed. So that's like a whole new resource of genetics. Right. And, and it's Yellowstone. And the TV show and the bit park and then the scarcity, it's, it's you know, they're... There's marking behind it now. 19, yeah. They're 1987 classic top Air Force Ones is what they are. That's, you know, they're just a pair of shoes. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, we, we paid a pretty penny for Yellowstone animals too. So don't worry. I've, I've, I've got in on the hype. But, you know, we've also got, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, Badlands, Wichita Mountains, Cap Rock Canyons. Um, we've got, what? I think we've got six of the main seven heritage herds. So, you know, we're trying to do our part and we're just trying to hold on to those genetics because, you know, anything can happen and, and keep them viable. So. Do you guys have any issues with, and you don't have to answer this inbreeding? No, I don't. Um, one we're, we're kind of a bigger herd and then we're always running heavy bulls so like right now you know i've got 250 yearling coming two-year-old bulls mm-hmm. they're probably gonna be able to they're able to mount a cow um they might get her bred but then i'm kind of always running heavy on bulls because I've, I've i've got hunt bulls out there i've got trophy bulls i've got i'm always heavy on bulls and then we're always bringing in, you know, two to three, sometimes eight bulls a year just to keep it fresh. So. That's good. Yeah. My, it just reminded me of like the Holstein genetics, you know, I think was there seven lineages that they can trace every Holstein cow to. And I, my husband actually just cut out a two headed calf out of a cow last week. And I thought it was, it's just line breeding when it works, it's in breeding when it doesn't. Right. right. So, yeah. I thought it was, I didn't, is it seven? I thought it was like three or four. It's probably less now, but I've I've always heard seven being thrown around. Yeah. It's, it, I know there's a huge bottleneck with the, with the Holstein breed and it goes back to like either three or seven animals that they're all getting semen from and still using some of that, that semen. And you know, like some of these registered breeds, Right. With embryo transfer and semen straws going all over the country, you know, that's a man-made bottleneck. And it is. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and you guys do you guys AI or no? Is it all live cover? Uh oh, who was it? Colorado. Industry, just so you know. Uh, yeah. Uh Colorado. I don't know if it was Colorado State or if it was the 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 arm there's the 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 old bombing run there on the outskirts of denver or right there in the in between denver and the airport um i can't yeah. remember them or if it was csu but they they did some uh they did some ai stuff and it was for brucellosis research or whatever right so, right okay no uh, no we're not, not really we're not AI. No. um i can't imagine that being fun not fun we're sarcasm for sure <laughs> the best way to talk to a cattle guy about bison is 
is we're pretty much how cows used to be. Yeah. So we're not we're not pulling calves. We're out on pasture more. <laughs> Ranching with nature. Yeah. yeah. Right. And the so, bulls are out there all year. So your your bulls are out there all year, right? Mine are. Most producers pull their bulls, house them in a different pasture. Okay. So now the question is. Do your cows have any sort of synced up defined calving season that they naturally fall in because of the management and your forage and feed availability, or are they just spread out everywhere? No. So, but they will, they will spread out everywhere. So since we're not feeding any hay or supplemental feed, we're drawn. So like right now, the body condition of my cows is starting has peaked and so by march i want them to come back down to like a six almost a five and so right now christmas time they should look good first of the year winter solstice comes around they're looking great they're big fat sassy happy yeah and now forage is getting more and more it's it's 100 dormant temperatures are colder they're they're caloric you know goes up their caloric need goes up and their actual forage intake should be going down just a hair and we're pushing them a little harder and then they've got a calf growing in them so then their body condition stood start going down just like this then we consider our green up the 15th of march and that's when we should start calving so we'll start getting just that little tiny shoots and then they'll calve and then that grass will hit and then they should bounce right back up and so, yes, we do have a natural window, but it is assisted with an ultrasound machine. Yeah. <laughs> but for the most part, they fall between that March 15th, May 15th. Well, and that's because are they, they're long day breeders in, right? Or is it short? Is that what it is? They like more sunlight during their photo period during the day right instead of go to like shorter photo periods okay yeah i would propose that that has more to do with the forage on long sunny days in the summer and not sunlight and not not the actual sunlight itself yeah not with the boys (laughs) they're ready whenever (laughs) no well yeah they'll do it whenever um any species will but they're rutting hard, like they're bellowing and they're fighting and they're, oh God, it's just, it's, it's awesome. You know, like I've been doing this for 16, 17 years now. And when the rut hits and you see some bulls getting after it and doing their thing, it's, it's stop the pickup, watch and, and enjoy it. Um, But it's always the same time. 20th of July, 20th of July. It's, it's, it's dead hard. They, you know, they start, you know, it starts, they start, them bulls start moving and doing some weird things around the 4th of July. And then about the 20th of July, it's bam, bam, bam. And it's just, it's just, it's just fun. And then that carries through. So, so I think it's the sunlight. I'm with you. It's the photo What's the real word for period. it? Period. Photo period. Yeah. I'm going to have to put July 20th on my calendar. Go visit. And go drive down to the Z bar 
and go drive oh, around yeah. on July 20th and see what's going on. Oh, yeah, that's right. You got Keith in there right next to you. I wasn't going to mention their name. Oh, sorry. Oh, geez. I didn't say his last name. Leave it out. Oh, yeah. Didn't say the last name. Uh, that's fine. I'm sure he won't mind. We didn't, we didn't say anything bad. So, no, he's a cool cat. I, he, doesn't even, he don't even look like a bison rancher. He's just, he's always on vacation, it looks like. He doesn't even look like he's a rancher, even when he's ranching. I know. Yeah. <laughs> he's a cool, cool cat. Cool cat. Yeah, uh, he did catch some heat from his employers uh, several years ago. Like, he, he literally got threatened that he couldn't wear Crocs anymore to work. Hmm. Well, safety hazard, man. He, yeah. wears, he, he wears, he puts them in four-wheel drive. <laughs> okay, yeah, he puts a strap on the back. That's what that means. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Crocs are super comfy, but they are, you can break your fit, foot real quick. Well, you know, the, the EL, you know, we're in EL together, obviously, but, uh, in, in, I've been working on the employee handbook, and in the employee handbook, it does say that long pants will be worn all the time. And like Cody and Justin, when it's 105, they and if they're doing an animal move that day, if they're not welding, you know, or, or doing something like that, they they wear their cargo shorts. And so, yeah, we're going to probably have to amend that or just ignore it, but whatever. <laughs> or bleep that section out. Yeah, yeah. We're also a tobacco-free workspace, too. So, yeah. How's that working out for you? Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It says in the handbook. It says it right here in the handbook. So I can be fired at any time. So if you wear shorts, you can be fired at any time. So it's, uh, yeah, so for for violating the policy. So. But yeah. it, it's written down and can't be referred down. to when necessary. <laughs> yeah, it can be Especially if you need a reason, right? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. You know how that meme says, you know, those kids can read. They'd be pretty mad at you right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, 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 that's us right here. That's us. If we could read, we'd probably be pretty bad. <laughs> so. A lot of times I feel like the kid on the outside trying to hold up the sign when I'm talking about soil health or, you know, regenerative ag. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's one thing. You know, regenerative ag. That's, you know, you know, like I, I mentioned that fire in, in Kansas and then that's been overshadowed by that fire in, in uh, Colorado, Colorado. Oh, that was, Ooh wowzers and uh you know and you know you live in grass country i live in grass country we've all known we've had friends and neighbors lose everything from a lightning started grass fire from a tourist started grass fire or even an equipment started grass fire and you know that just made national news but what 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 was the effect and i may be opening up a can of worms but you know, I, I was kind of meditating on that because, you know, they put the call out clear up here to send, you know, units, you know, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't have anybody available, but we didn't send anybody. But um, I got to thinking about that. And, and, you know, when I used to go down into that country in the late nineties, there wasn't nothing there, you know, and now it's all just subdivisions. And you think about all that 
rainwater that's going sideways and then into forced drainages. Yep, that used to be going into the soil or going down a natural drainage. Now it's right. going on a roof or on concrete and going and, somewhere unnatural. You know, and then I don't know if it was abnormally warm that day or whatever, but, you know, I got to thinking, gosh, you know, urban interface in, in the fire industry is just a changing fire site. You know, there's so much urban interface with wildland and urban. And I was just trying to imagine to put myself there, but how much of that was affected by blacktop or, or wind moving through structures. I don't want to go down that road to say, you know, you don't have the right to build, but I think somebody should probably who's smarter than me should probably look into that. I don't know, but I think we need to be more aware of what we are building and where we're building it. Like, a lot of the houses that burned up in the wildfires we had here, you know, in 1617 and then down in Oklahoma in 2018, all the structures that were lost, at, okay, not all, can't say that, somebody will fact check me. Most of the structures that were lost had eastern red cedar trees within 50 yards of the house. Like, when when the Starbucks fire happened in 2017, I went over there and of 13 houses that got burnt down, 11 of them had cedar trees right next to them. Like, right. okay, so for context, eastern red cedar, it's a, it's a juniper, it's a coniferous tree, it's got a lot of heavy oils in it, and it burns like gasoline when it gets fire on it. Yeah. Why would you put those near your house if you live in the middle of grasslands that for six months out of the year are basically a tinderbox. Didn't make sense to me. Like after the fire in 2016, my dad had a row of cedar, had two rows of cedar trees behind his house. Funny story. He planted them there. He, he transplanted them there in the late nineties. And this is after he'd already been on the ranch for 15 years, burning trees, cutting trees and, and cleaning the place up. So he decides he wants a windbreak on the north side of his house. He goes and gets the tree spade from the conservation district. He goes out on the ranch to look for trees. Can't find any. Can't find enough to transplant trees. Can't find enough trees on 7,000 acres to transplant a windrow behind his house. So he had to go to the neighbor's property and requisition some trees. Okay. So... He put that shelter belt behind the house. Another little funny story. Uh, the guy that was riding that pasture that he stole the trees out of, he confront. He came up to my dad one day down at the bar, and he's like, "Ted, there's something really strange going on out here in the pasture. I got to show you this. I got to show you this." Oh no! <laughs> so of course, my dad like immediately knew. Like he instantly knew what Gene was on about, but he had to play along. So they go out to this pasture. And Gene takes him out to this spot where dad had taken a tree and put back a plug of soil. So it's like there's a plug of soil in there that's six inches down from everything else. And the grass has turned like 90 degrees. And Gene's just standing there going, there's a bunch more of these, Ted. I don't know what's going on. Aliens. <laughs> I think dad messed with them for a minute, but he did tell him, like, no, I came over here and stole these trees. They're behind my house in a shelter belt. So. In 2016, when that wildfire came through, we had one, we had a wildfire come right past uh, that house in 2008. 
And it was a lot of work to keep fire out of that shelter belt, even though that day the wind was out of the south, so it would have been blowing away from the house. Anderson Creek in 2016, the wind was out of the northwest when it came by the house. And those trees are on the north side. And managed to keep fire out of there again. And about two months after that, I had finally caught my breath from rebuilding fence and, you know, getting cows back on the ranch and, you know, getting to where I was going to make a living again. Right. I had a day and I was just sitting there in the yard and I looked at my skid steer and I looked at those trees and I looked at the mulcher head and I put all three of them together and I made those trees go away in about three hours. Dad came out and he was like, well, it's going to be awful cold in the house this winter. And I said, well, it's better than being hot for one day. Really, really, you know, being really hot for one day. Right. I'm not, not messing with trying to keep fire out of these trees. Again, they're getting too big. They're too close. Fire gets in these, your house is gone. That's it. It's gone. So being aware of where you're at, like the wildland urban interface has always been a problem for firefighters and that situation is not going to improve at all. And I, I have to look at the management of those interface areas. Like we can control the management on our ranches. We can manage a dangerous fuel load on our ranches because it's our private property. We kind of get to do what we want for the most part. And part of that for me is managing a fuel load if I want to burn or if I want to protect an area from burning. Right. Right. And I think that as people, you know, move out into these urban wildland interface zones, because they want to live near nature, it's so pretty. Well, it's not always pretty when it's been conserved and not managed at all. You know, overgrown forest is, is way more of a fire hazard than anything else. Right. You know, and we see that in the mountains. I'm sure you see that in the Black Hills, your trips through Colorado. CK, I know you see it out there in Idaho. Mm. You know, just like we were relearning to manage our grasslands better. You know, the way we did it, the way we all learned how to do it, and the way we've been doing it previously. I, I think most of our listeners, and I know the three of us can all agree, didn't work. That's why we're all trying to do stuff differently. Right. And I think we need to start looking at like federal lands management, BLM, Forest Service, whatever you want to look at, whatever you want to call it, public lands are like the worst managed. They're not managed at all. They're not managed to the point of intentional neglect, which leads to dangerous fuel builds up. Dangerous fuel buildup. And you have a situation like happened in Colorado where fire gets going, where there hasn't been any logging, grazing, any animal impact allowed and that fire just roars right into town because the forest is so overgrown and and over thick with brush fire just runs into town and runs right through town like that shouldn't happen like there should be some kind of a buffer zone in between the, these dense urban areas and the wildland where they could stop a fire that's right. just me <laughs> but, yeah but the thing is 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 you know, there's, there's what, two, two stakeholders, two stakeholders in our management plan, you know, us and nature. Mm. Um, yeah, I you get know, it. You know, I mean, 
that's a that's a pretty easy management plan you know that's that's what happens that's that's the problem you know you get but you know like i was gonna say you know you get you get a bunch of stakeholders when you get into a situation like that you've got so many stakeholders in it the plan just gets derailed or has to take a less effective route and you know maybe it's a little w right in the beginning but you know but like you know a lot of them people they didn't know they just bought a beautiful home those homes were beautiful oh, look know, at these beautiful cool. trees right out the back door I, I know i know they're beautiful they don't know but it was it was just something that it, i got to thinking you know i've, I've drove through that area and, and before and then i was just and i need to go back down there i don't know exactly where it is but i was thinking gosh there's probably something to do it but you know I don't know. Maybe it was just a freak event, but you're right. There's, there needs to be some management, some safety, and hopefully, you know, with these large events, these large events, you know, people become more fire wise, right? Self removing the shelter belt and, you know, you know, maybe we shouldn't have actual dead, like even around here, I was sent in our own fire district. I was sent to protect a house. And I mean, the, the, the grass was, you know thigh high up close to the house and you know there was you know wood stacked under the deck and everything else and full of duff and litter and leaves and you know i mean we get that everywhere and and, but you know it comes right back down to personal responsibility but in that situation where the radiant heat of your neighbor's house catching on fire catches your other house on fire catches the other house on fire just through radiant heat it's not even actual flame contact it's radiating heat that's so hot that it can bust so yeah yeah it's just tragic but you know maybe maybe we make them more than eight feet apart (laughs) i don't know (laughs) you know i don't know I, i i hate to laugh because there's so many you know what is there a thousand thousand homeless families down there but I don't want to laugh too did and be have be recorded and broadcasted, but but yeah, hopefully there's some lessons learned there. And yeah, and hopefully we but you know, animal agriculture and holistic management are getting little wins everywhere, you know, through goats. You know, I hate to go back to goats, but there's these you know, people with goats, these and you know they've got they're getting W's because they're you know, they're 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 winning in areas that are in urban areas or public lands, you know, controlling noxious weeds or something like that, or knocking down fuels. And then on the flip side of that, you've got people riding their bikes through public lands and you have a non-functioning water tank that is just being trumped bad in a riparian area that's being tromped in next to a biking trail <laughs> and it ends up on instagram and snapchat and there's a, a you know, pick your color a cow that's standing there to be the culprit you know and then the land baron cattle man behind it you know that's and here's this cow knee deep in a stream coming out of a busted float out of a poorly managed tank and you know just busting the crap out of that and and they think it's a 
you know, pristine trout stream, you know, and, you know, if, if we could control that stuff and make that stuff go away, but it's, that stuff happens all the time. We all lose a float or a float gets stuck or something happens. And, you know, you have that stuff happen all the time, but, you know, mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing you've got, you got both sides on one side, we got the narrative that we're trying to project that we're, we're cleaning up and doing good with animal agriculture. And then on the flip side of it, you got that one half of 1% guy with a, you know, lease and granddaddy's always had a lease and I've always put 200 head up there. And now the land manager's going to tell me I can only put 150 and he forgets to tell you that granddaddy's cows only weighed 900 pounds and his cows weigh 1700 pounds. And, right. You know, and he's calving in December because he wants his calves to be fully grown and survive the truck ride to the hills and everything else, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's just it's just insane but but no i mean we all got to get on board and stick together and, and and try to control that narrative and do the best we can and and then hopefully you know you know things will change because it's because you know even you know don't you know, we say it all the time don't blame the cow blame the how and right we gotta and, you know, it's not just the cow, it's don't blame the protein, blame the how, because, you know, we could be doing it with sheep, we could do it, be doing it with goats, we could do, be doing it with cattle, we could be doing it with other ungulates, we could be doing it with bison, we can, you know, you can, there's no one species that fits each as a, as a whole, but in each situation, we can find a species that fits. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I'd agree with that. So, I just looked at the clock. We're getting close. Are we? We need to wrap this up. Have we forgot to ask you anything? Um, gosh, I don't know. I just, I got that dang sliver in my finger. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. (laughs) No, I think, you know, I think we covered the gamut. I thought I'd tell you a little. I, I probably should probably put a little more facts about bison and, you know, how it's, so good for you and, and lay it on us it's what americas were supposed to eat um you know <laughs> um but no i mean try bison i mean I, I go to town and i get me a good beef steak every once in a while um i ain't i ain't afraid to produce my and you know like the bison guys ain't gonna outdo the cattle guys we ain't gonna replace you and then when people say bison are the culprit whether they get the bad name you know right around you know the yellowstone park area you know brucellosis stuff like that Mm -hmm. the whole state of montana just remember that there's no management plan up there you know you know that could be handled so much better they could have an auction you know they could they could they could do better roundups and, and they could convert you know mature animals into meat for or or observe you know treaty rights um heaven forbid that um you know and, and have local indigenous people doing the harvesting for them or something like that so you know if if somebody tries to use bison in a bad light you know they, they usually have an agenda you know good or bad and you know there's some there's some groups using bison as a tool you know saying that you know they move themselves around and you know we can we can buy these large plots of land and remove all the fence and the interior fencing and 
and the bison are going to manage themselves and they're going to improve the ecosystem because they're the keystone species. That doesn't and, work, does it? Um, well, no, because you're, you're using, yeah, you're using two, three million acres, but that, that two, three million acres, it doesn't spread from northern Canada to, to, to northern Mexico. And is there a predator pushing them? Right. And, or, you know, or, or tribes of people pushing them. Yeah, exactly. So, you got to remember the human species have been, has been having a footprint on the ecosystem for a long, long time, as far as management goes. And so if somebody tells you that they've got a halo, you just remember that the pounds per square inch on the hoof of a bison is the same as a cow. And you got to remember the distance from the outside of the lip to their teeth is the same. They can only graze down that far. And they should only be grazing down that far if they're forced to. Just like a cow, you know, a horse can graze down to that far. A goat can graze down to that far. That's the distance because they, a horse has a way to move its lip and he has teeth on the top. Right. You know, um, things like that. So, you know, it, it goes against all the biology. So, you know, it's, he's tearing up, each footstep is a footstep and each, each, they're sticking that tongue out there and they're curling that tongue and they're, they're pulling leaf off of that plant. And if you force them to bite it twice, well, you know, either you need to be moving them with water or a pipeline, or you need to be moving them or you controlling them with fence or herders. You know, if you're going to, you know, you can remove all the fence, but you better have a herder or herders, you know, so. I could, I can see that turning into a wreck, like not being able to find animals, having, having a group that just goes feral, that never gets seen. I, but you know, they're, they're going to camp on those riparian areas. Of course. They're, they're, they're going to graze them and then they're going to be somewhat sub irrigated, you know, or they're in a drainage. And so the water is going to drain there during a rain event. So it's going to have higher moisture and then that's going to have, you know, your fastest growth. And if, and if that rain event comes back before a proper rest period for that plant species, that's overgrazing. Plain and simple. It's not the animal science. This is, it's time <laughs> in science. That's it. And so, <laughs> And like I said, animals don't overgraze, managers do. And that's that's just the way it is. And and hopefully we can keep getting that message out there. So I think that's a good spot to end. Yeah. Well, it was good to see your face. I'll probably see you in Colorado Springs. It was nice to meet you. Down there in the little side there. Shake your, shake your hand down there in the corner. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. <laughs> well, it was great to see you too, Moritz. And uh, really thank you for joining us. You bet. Thank you, sir. You enjoy the rest of your day. Will do. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yep. Bye, guys. Enjoy your week. Bye.